0: Teaching series that we've called Sin and Grace, and uh, what I wanted to do is take these huge, big, weighty theological topics and just talk about them simply and straightforward. These topics um, have sometimes gotten uh, have been attached to a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, and sometimes these big, huge topics for us are sort of like we want to avoid them just because they're so big and they feel uh, actually so abstract. So. This series is an attempt for us to wrestle with these big things and to, learn, to um, learn what they can mean for our life, how we are transformed. And last week in my um, never-ending attempt to find fun and creative ways, I talked about sin being a tribe of wasps, literally. I'm not kidding, uh, and I wrote a poem about how this tribe of wasps literally attacked me, true story, while I was putting up my son's basketball hoop, and that kicked off our story. These teeny devils, wasps, and, um, and so it's a joke, um, but uh, we've sort of tried to break down like these big picture definitions, and then to suggest that uh, these concepts are always bigger than our definitions can make them, but we've talked about sin as a breaking of God's law, we've talked about this sort of force in our world that's destructive, that has death, and that tells us these lies. And we talked about grace being this undeserved lover. I'm finding more and more that maybe we should say it's transformative love, um, and that, that grace is always this creative force that brings life, and that's a truth teller. And so we've—one um, of the, the most beautiful observations that I have found is that our, the ancient forefathers and foremothers of our faith, they wrote stories— The Bible is full of stories. They didn't hand us definitions like we like, but they said, you want to know what sin and grace is like? Here's a story. Do you want to know, do you want to think about these characters and who they are and what they're like and let these characters resonate in your soul? And I find it profound that instead of just telling us the answer, the ancients say, no, we need another story. So uh, last week we talked about this incredible story of King David and Mephibosheth, and this week we're going to talk about that beautiful story, the Good Samaritan, as we continue to wrestle and to think with one another of what sin and grace is. So I invite you to pray with me this morning. God, thank you for this community of people. Thank you for the prayers that were shared. Thank you for the songs that were sung. Thank you for the baptism where we proclaimed that you are at work in the life of your son Hudson and of all your sons and daughters in this room. I ask you, God, to continue to uh, challenge us, continue to breathe uh, a sort of fresh life on our faith. Help us, God, to be in awe and wonder of who you are and what you can mean in our life. And all God's people said... Amen. A few years ago I read this fascinating book called What's So Amazing About Grace written by Philip Yancey and uh, I got to this page in the book where this quote came. It came quicker in the book. (laughs) Ready, here we go. It's, boom, technology. It says grace is Christianity's best gift to the world a spiritual nova in our midst, exerting a force stronger than vengeance, stronger than racism, stronger than hate. And I got to the point in the book, and I I had to put the book down because I was like, that's amazing. It's profound. It's deep. It's rich that grace is Christianity's best gift to the world. And I thought, I've already paid for the book with one quote. And then I went on and read the very next sentence, Sadly, to a world desperate for this grace, the church sometimes presents one form of ungrace. And I went from this like elation of like yes, grace, to like disquieted in my soul, this like stomach upset of like the church being another form of ungrace. And then Philip Yancey goes on in this marvelous book to tell all these stories about how the church can recover its call to be gracious people. One day uh, in the Gospel of Luke, a lawyer comes to Jesus. And this lawyer is not just like any other lawyer. It says this lawyer came to test him. So, this lawyer, this man who's been trained in all the loopholes of the law, this man who's been trained in sort of logical arguments that lead to how we think and how we structure society, comes to Jesus and he says, How do I inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says to him, knowing who the man is, he asks him a question. What, what's written in the law? How do you read it? So the man, obviously well-schooled in what it meant to be a Jewish uh, man, he says the Shema, which is what a prayer that all little boys and little Jewish girls were taught. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he adds what Jesus was teaching in the villages, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus simply says, very simply, he says, he says, Go. And you do these things, and you'll have life. But then the lawyer, acting very lawyery, tells uh, Jesus, "Hey, could you just tell me who's my neighbor?" So then Jesus, at this pivotal moment in his ministry, he acts very like a rabbi and does what ancient people do, and he tells a story. And he says, "One day, a Judean man, a Jewish man, was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho." this trek took about 18, it was 18 miles. It would take quite a long time in the day. The Jericho Road, if you've never been there, it's a windy road. It's a dangerous road. This road is filled with bandits and robbers in the ancient world. So this trek was only taken with utter seriousness. So this man makes this trek. And um, as he's taking this trek, he's probably a businessman. He probably has some business to take care of in Jericho. And then as Jesus is telling this story, he says, he gets very vivid. He says the man is beaten, that the man is stripped of his clothes, that the man is robbed, and that the man is left there half dead. So we have this Jewish man who's left half dead on the streets of, of the Jericho Road. And then as Jesus tells a story, a priest happens to walk by on this road. And on this road, when, when a Jewish audience would hear this, they would think, the priest has come. This is good news. The priest is gonna help this Jewish man. And so as the priest comes, he sees the man And he walks by on the other side of the road as the story goes. Now, a Jewish audience would be just utterly shocked by this. This is the one that they respected. This is the spiritual leader who is supposed to teach the people how to live, how to behave. And the priest doesn't do anything for the man who's left half dead on the side of the road. And so there's like this shock to the story. And then um, the story goes, there's a a Levite who's coming. Now, a Levite assisted the priest in the temple. So he's sort of like the associate pastor in this situation. And if the priest is too busy, what happens? The associate pastor, well, surely they'll do it. So there's like this saving grace in the story. Surely it's going to happen. And the Levite walks by the man who's half dead. And then a Jewish audience just would have been aghasted that their very spiritual leaders, the ones that knew what was right to do, did not do it. And then as the story goes, Jesus tells them about a Samaritan man. Now right there, the story everyone would have gasped to the Jewish audience cuz Samaritans were not favored by Jewish people. There was this history of long conflict. There was this fighting, there was this judgment. They didn't worship like the Jews did. They didn't do the things that Jews did. They were foreigners. They were sort of half Jewish, half Samaritan breeds. So you have this incredible look, this judgment of these people. They were people who were not like Jewish people. So in this story as Jesus is telling it, all of a sudden Jesus says, and the Samaritan man, he's the one who cleaned the wounds of this man who was beaten and left for dead. He's the one who then checked him into a hotel and fed him and then left extra money just in case he wasn't fully recuperated the next day. So if you were in that, if you were standing around that lawyer, you would have heard this beautiful story. And then Jesus does what I call the first century mic drop and looks at the lawyer and says this, which one in the story is like a neighbor? Boom, mic drop, Jesus. And, <laughs> and um, this story is, is uh profound. Even today, right, we've, we've all heard this story, hopefully, and, and, um, and this story t- teaches us so many things on so many levels. It teaches us that we never know what's underneath and in the heart of a, another human being. But one of the things it teaches us about sin and grace is that oftentimes grace is subversive because who we commonly think of as sinners become the messengers, So in this story, the very person that we thought, oh, there's no way this person would do it, the sinner becomes the messenger. The sinner becomes the minister. And isn't that profound? And haven't we experienced that in our life? The people that we least expected to act with grace are often the most graceful. I got a call uh, about two years ago at the church here, and they told me that um, this lady in our community had passed away. She was 38 years old. Her name was Candy, and she was a bartender. And literally, they said, um, this is not going to be an average uh, funeral service, but we heard you're not an average pastor, and would you do it? I don't know how I get myself in these situations. And um, the lady on the phone is telling me about this lady candy and telling me, I I just want to prepare you pastor. It's, it's not going to be normal. And I'm like, it's okay. This is what we do. We want to be loved to people. And um, so I show up at this funeral home and I I get to talk with um, her three boys and each boy has a different dad. And it's just one of those really tough stories. And um, I show up and I kid you not, it was right here in Highlands Ranch, the most diverse audience in Highlands Ranch I have ever seen, ever. And um, we get through most of the funeral and um, it was just this, this um, a lot of grief, a lot of heartache was being shared. And, and then all of a sudden I do what I love to do. I just said, if you have a story about candy and you'd like to take this moment to share it, we're going to let this mic be open for the next 10 minutes or so. People lined up, story after story. It was so moving. Stories like this. Candy was the only person that ever accepted me. Candy, when I came into the bar too much, told me that I was an alcoholic and that I needed help. And I was mad at Candy at first, but then I went to AA and it changed my life. Candy, when my husband divorced me, took me into her own home. When everything was going wrong, Candy brought me groceries the very next day to my home. Story after story of this incredible woman in our community, and I had to just hold back the tears because it was so profound. At the very person that we all would categorize as the sinner was the real minister in the community. She was the Samaritan in the situation, doing good to all of the community. So isn't it profound what we learn about sin and grace, that oftentimes it's the people we least expect that share with us the greatest grace in life. It makes me really wonder, this quote again from Philip Yancey, grace is Christianity's... I, I, I know how to run a PowerPoint most times, Grace is Christianity's best gift to the world, a spiritual nova. That's a shimmering, shining star in our midst, exerting a force stronger than vengeance, stronger than racism, stronger than hate. And then that other line sadly, to a world desperate for this grace, the church sometimes presents one more form of ungrace. So I wondered um, this question if we're thinking about this story, what makes priests that don't do the good they should do? What makes Levites and what makes me sometimes lack the courage and lack the backbone to do the good that I know I need to do? What stops us all, well-intentioned, well-meaning people from showing grace? And a few years ago, um, two Princeton psychologists decided to do a study on this very same question. And what they did was they they literally took a seminary class, which is a a class of pastors who are trained to be pastors, assuming that these pastors want to do good to the world. I think it's a fair assumption in the study. And they basically said, here's what we're going to do. Un, unknown to these students, we're going to conduct this major research project. Every single student is going to have to give a sermon uh, like today's on the Good Samaritan Passage. And, uh, and that's what they're going to be required to do, but there's some twists that these researchers were going to do. So on the day that they all were supposed to give their sermon to the class, they staggered them like you have to do in a preaching class, and they basically decided to say, when the class came together, they said, "Hey." We got to change a venue. We're going to go to this auditorium that's across campus. And so just wait here. When your time's come, we'll we'll tell you when it's ready to walk over to the auditorium. So one by one, the professor released each student who's ready to give their sermon on the Good Samaritan. And they hired an actor to sit right before the auditorium and to look as if he was beaten and broken and mugged right in the quad of Princeton University. And so um, then... One more twist to the story, to half of the future pastors, they said, hey, take your time getting there. Uh, We're we're a little ahead of schedule, so just walk across and then you'll be ready. And then to the other half, they said, hurry up. You've got to hurry. Like, we're behind schedule and we need you to go. And so one by one, these pastors went. And amazingly, the study concluded 10% of those who were told to hurry stopped to help the man. And 63% of those told to take their time, stopped to help the man. And so these psychologists, um, they said that we live, their conclusions were this, that there wasn't actually anything morally uh, wrong in any of their, these, these pa- future pastors, but when people are told to hurry, when people are told they need to, there's a business, there's something on their demand, they typically sort of have no sight for other people. And then this, the psychologist went on to talk about how, how we live in a busy culture and how often our schedules are overflowing and often we have more commitments on our schedule than we, we can even accomplish in a day. And they concluded that the busyness of American lifestyle is why most people don't act with grace. And it's, boom, amazing insight. I've been reading a book um, by John Acuff called Do Over. And John Acuff um, does an amazing job of talking about uh, our workplaces and how to become a better employee and what you need to be a better employee. And it's, he's, he's funny and he's brilliant. And he tells this story about a friend who told him, John, I made it 30 days without my cell phone. And, and John, John says, uh, uh, congratulations. Like, you know, how did you make any calls? <laughs> you know, what did you do? And He goes, oh no, man, 30 days without taking my cell phone into the bathroom with me. And John is like, congratulations. And, and yet um, all of us here know the temptation that t- to take our phones everywhere we go. And these devices have become for us so consuming in our life. And, and they're helpful. They're good. We need cell phones. But do we really need them in the bathroom? right? Do we really need, is it really that urgent to respond to that email or that text in the bathroom? And then John Acoff uses this um, observation to say that something very interesting has happened in the workplace. For millennials, for people 40 and younger, um, the most pressing skill they will need to learn is this. He says this, in the years to come, being present, That at work is going to be game-changing. No one is present anymore. And he says that the most sought-after skill in the next 10 years will be someone that's able to put their phone away and to be fully present at meetings. And I think that's an amazing insight for us to think about. Those people who can say, nothing else matters but this moment right now and the problems we're solving as a team. Um, And he's talking about our work life. What about our private and home lives? What about everything we try to do uh, as Americans? Are we not overflowing all the time with busyness upon busyness upon busyness? And this is keeping us from being people of grace. And so I came across um, this thought this week of maybe the story teaches modern people that sin is self-centered busyness. And I don't mean, uh, there, are, there are seasons where we need busyness. When you are in college and you've got to get things done before the end of the term, that is an important deadline. When you're working on a work project, that's an important deadline you've got to reach. When your family's doing a home repair project for uh, whatever, um, these are important deadlines. But what I mean is the way we seem to schedule ourselves over and over again when we know there's no possible way we can put, fit all that stuff in in one day. And I just see it over and over again in my own life and in my friend's life. So maybe the sin that this story tells us about is our self-centered busyness. The way we continue to commit and say yes to more and more and more where the most important things we have to say no to. So we add to our definitions, sin is self-centered busyness. So then grace, grace like candy, grace like the Good Samaritan is that other-centered attentiveness. We can't do everything. We can't fix everyone's problem, but we can be aware of those needs around us. We can learn to change, we can learn to sort of attune ourselves to those people, um, their pains and their aches, and how we can maybe play a part in helping them. So then grace is other centered attentiveness. But the question becomes how do we gain this approach to think about others first, to, to not say yes to so many things on our schedule that we're bursting over? And I found this quote by Frederick Buechner that's amazing. He says, Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery that it is. In the boredom and pain of it no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden part of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments. And life itself is grace. I think that phrase, listen to your life, captures well how we become people of grace, how we become people who say no to this sin of busyness and yes to this incredible life of offering people grace, receiving grace for ourselves. And I want to conclude today by three questions for you. And I don't know the answers for you. Only you know the answers. And I think it changes with each season of our life. But how do we listen to our life? And for me, there's been three things do you start or end your day listening to silence? We live an incredibly busy, cacophonous world. There, I, I have two kids, so it's like times ten—like going off in my head. The busyness, the commotion, the action—and do you open your day just allowing yourself to breathe deep into silence? Or maybe you're a night person, and before night, you just turn everything off and just listen to the silence. Because I found that in the silence is where your soul and your whole being can experience that deep love that binds this world together. The second question is Is there anything in your weekly schedule that you can move around to amplify grace in your life? Um, I met this man who is a salesman in the corporate world, high demand job. And uh, he was telling me his story, and basically he worked for this incredible company, and they just demanded more and more and more, and he realized that he was giving his family less and less and less, and so he went to his boss, and he said, "Um, hey, I want to ask you, um, could I come in an hour early, because um, my wife and my kids, they need me home at at 5 p.m., and the boss said, well, yeah, that's fine. So he started going in an hour early with this boss and, um, and it was incredible. Like it changed the rhythm in their family. And then he did something else. He, he noticed that, um, the guys that at his work were like, they, they like messed around for like an hour of their lunchtime. And like, it was like guy time, uh, at this salesman job. And he just, he communicated his boss, Hey, could I just take a half hour lunch because that puts me just one more half hour. And I promise you, I will be your hardest working person for that eight hours I put in. And the boss is like, I see nothing wrong with that. And he communicated to the guys, hey guys, I, I love you guys, but my family's got to come first. And so then this man's telling me how just that simple thing allowed him to um, be closer to his family, to listen and be gracious to his wife, to respond to his kids' needs. So it's these little things we shift around that can allow us to unpack the busyness what is that for you? Is there something you can pull out? And then the last one, are you being realistic with what you can and can't accomplish in a day? In a day. In a season, what you can let go of? I am absolutely the worst at this one. And, um, and I, I've um, come to find that I have to say no because I've already said yes to other things yes to my family, yes to love, yes to grace. And so it's these three things that I think can help us slow down a bit to be attentive to grace around us. And so as we conclude today,